Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, joined by Joshua Briscoe. Dr. Briscoe is a, an assistant professor. He works at the VA associated with Duke in, uh, in Raleigh-Durham. Uh, North Carolina, and he is a palliative care specialist, a psychiatrist, and an internist. Dr. Briscoe, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. It's great. I'm I'm honored you'd have me. Well, I have uh, I've been enjoying some of your tweets, and then I thought, you know, I really want to talk to this person. Um, but before we get to that, why don't why don't you give listeners a little bit of the background? Um, you know, not a lot of people do med psych. You know, what is this med psych? And not a lot of people do palliative med psych. So, you know, when you came out of when you came out of medical school. What were you interested in and, and why did you make those choices? Yeah, th- well, thanks for that opportunity to provide a plug for MedPsych because I'm always looking for new venues in which to, uh, to spread the word and the, <laughs> the gospel of MedPsych. So um, I came into medical school wanting to do psychiatry. I was really interested in mental health care. And I just happened to uh, train at a school that had a MedPsych program. And I was really intrigued by these house staff that could you know, manage decompensated schizophrenia and turn around and manage ACS. And, and we're quite fluent in sort of seemingly in all areas of medicine. They were extremely well-rounded clinicians and very astute and thoughtful. And so that's what I wanted to do. And, and, uh, and when I left medical school, I only applied to med-psych programs. That's really, really what I wanted to do was really help folks with severe mental illness and concomitant medical issues or severe medical illness and concomitant mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and came to Duke. I was, I was blessed to wind up at Duke. I was very happy here and, and very welcomed. Um, and it was great training. And then as I went through my residency training, I sort of, I had no, I, you know, no prospects of going into palliative care. I had trouble um, even envisioning why anyone would ever want to do palliative care. It wasn't until I started rotating through the ICUs as house staff that I realized um, how desperately terrible um, the experience is for folks going through serious or critical medical illness is. Um, the experience of communication, the experience of prognostication, the experience of symptoms, the experience of dying, it's all just really, really terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even when the best care is offered, it still really sucks when mm-hmm. you when you die and, and when you're really sick and you've got organ transplants and a lot going on. I mean, the folks at the Duke MICU are not your sort of routine neurosepsis patients. And um, it was after that, that I just happened to do an elective in palliative care. And it was like a breath of fresh air. I mean, the philosophy of care, the approach to patient care, 
Um, the, uh, the emphasis on what the patient's goals are. Mm -hmm. So, so often in my primary care clinic, I felt like I had to talk about diabetes and hypertension. The patient mm -hmm. wanted to talk about their knee pain. And we spent the whole visit reconciling the disparate goals. Um, and palliative care isn't like that. Palliative care is about me helping folks do the things they want to do and live the life they want to live for however long they have left. And um, as I went along through the, throughout the rest of my training, that um, just really, really continued to come home to me and, and be driven deeper into my heart and mind that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And that is really the philosophy of psychiatry is uh, what, what the philosophy of psychiatry is too. You know, there's very few cures in psychiatry. People do recover from major depressive episodes and these sorts of things. But as far as the treatments we offer, I don't cure anybody with an SSRI. I don't cure anybody mm -hmm. um, with an antipsychotic or dopamine antagonist. I, I manage a very chronic, oftentimes a lifelong condition. Mm -hmm. And the treatments I offer for a palliative. They are, they're not disease modifying usually. Um, and so that philosophy is already embedded with psychiatry. And I think was already sort of nascent within my, my desire to help and assuage suffering. Interesting. So I was very glad to do um, the fellowship training at Duke as well. And, and now every day I'm, I'm applying all the principles of general internal medicine, psychiatry, palliative care. I'm sort of working my dream job. I really enjoy it. That's terrific. And you get to work at the VA, which is a great place to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Many things you said that I thought were super interesting. One to me is that, you know, you, I think you're right when you talk about internal medicine, how the patient wants to talk about the knee pain, but the doctor wants to talk about the A1C. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a great failure of internal medicine, actually, one of the most uh, interesting and noble things. I think, I think these things are all interlocked. The fact that they're reimbursed poorly, the fact that uh, people are not clamoring to go into the field. Um, and the fact that you have to deal with these metrics that are, are capricious and arbitrary. And as, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, there's the McNamara fallacy. Um, what you can me uh, just because you can measure it doesn't mean it matters. And, and what you can't measure doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and you see that in internal medicine because, you know, lo and behold, somebody thought the A1C is a good metric. In fact, you know, of course, it has some prognostic relevance. Um, mm -hmm whether or not you should push drugs to certain A1C goals, long debate, and there's many randomized control trials, Accord and Advance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, however, it's a number and you can focus on the number and you can judge the doctors and say, well, these doctors are the good doctors. They hit the number. These doctors are the less good doctors. They didn't hit the number. Okay, so you can measure something. So that's what matters. And what you forget is you've actually forgotten about the person in the room and they don't really care if it's 7.1 mm -hmm. or 6.9. You care a lot about that. They don't care about that. It actually doesn't mean a lot for their life. What they do care yes. about is their knee pain, which you haven't even talked about or addressed. And actually, yeah. that to me, that the fact that we as physicians allowed, I think, either hobbyist physicians or administrators or these other culprits, I don't want to get into them because my contempt will be too great. Um, they're the ones who've imposed this on us. And this is, you know, they've taken away what it means to be a physician. So to be honest with you, I view oncology as to some degree, we are still haven't been captured by the tentacles of this, this, you know, metrics mm. monster. We still can focus on, you know, what actually matters to people. And actually probably my philosophy of life and medicine is probably very similar to yours. Um, and that's the beauty of, I think, some of these other fields where, you know, there's a beauty to, to you know, well, I guess I, I'd say a couple, I mean, one last thought. I mean, I guess I'd say, I actually do believe that some doctors are better than other doctors. I, like, I don't dispute that as a claim that's very likely to be the case. And doctors can move up in their own wherever you are. You can move up. I believe that to be the case. 
but I do not believe there are numbers that get to that question. You want to know if someone's a good doctor, you go around with them for a week. You'll know a lot. You spend a month, you know, talking to them about patients or go to tumor board with them. You'll learn a lot. Um, and then you also want to be on the patient side of it, be their patient. Let's see how good a doctor they are. But you know, that's the kind of work nobody wants to do. So anyway, what you said resonates with me because I think the core part of being a met of being in the field of medicine, this thousand year old profession is that one of the key things we do is we meet people for their concerns and what bothers them. And we make that as better as we can. We don't hijack them to serve our interests and get their numbers to where we want them to be. Yes. I will say just to add, add an additional comment that, you know, as a palliative care doctor, I find myself and still early in my career, I find myself in a lot of awkward situations where I'm working with, you know, subspecialized clinicians who are feel bound by some of these metrics. I mean, in oncology, you have PFS and these sorts of things where they're, they're, they're numbers that are the, are they actually anchored to anything that matter? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not an oncologist. I'm not a cardiologist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so all I can do is continue to advocate for the person, you know, let's step back away. You know, you, you, that's evidence-based medicine. You're taking the evidence and you're doing the best you can to apply it to the person in front of you, recognizing the limits of the evidence and, and not getting so bound up in some of the metrics. You know, I, that was one of the things that drove me to palliative care out of the ICU was we would stand at the bedside of some of these patients running, running the board, you know, running through all the labs and everything. We'd be discussing, you know, glucose and insulin going up and down and the patient's dying. I mean, mm -hmm. the patient's dying. We totally mm -hmm. lost mm -hmm. the forest for the trees. Yes. Um, and and pontificate about you know different trials and managing glucose in the ICU and all these sorts of things and it's it's easy to lose sight of so as a palliative care doctor I feel like oftentimes it's my role to just advocate for a little bit of humanity and insanity and and medicine you've got to do it with tact and it's uh mm -hmm. it's a people management skills and half the people you're managing are the other doctors they don't know you're managing them but I, I agree with you a lot and I often find myself as the person in the room who wants to point out that you know, uh, somebody advocates that we should, oh, well, you know, we should also try X, we should try X. And I was like, well, you know, uh, what, what's your base for trying X? Well, as you know, there's that new trial, uh, Panorama City, you know, some fancy name, new trial, and it's got a 2.8 month improvement in PFS. I was like, 2.8 month, wow, okay, 2.8 month. And what was the OS difference there? Oh, like, oh, it's not mature. It's not mature. I was like, by not mature, you mean the curves are superimposable. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So there's not mature means there's absolutely no liquid difference and unlikely to be a liquid difference. Anyway, all right, whatever, it's not mature. Okay, that's what you like to say. Okay, there's a PFS difference. Um, what do you think is going to happen when you extrapolate this trial data to this person, this person whose Billy is X, this person whose renal function is X, this person who's got this comorbidity? You think this person was in your trial? This person ain't in your trial. Your trial is people with ECOG zero. This person's ECOG is, what do you think this ECOG is? Um, what do you think is going to happen to that? Two months PFS. And then I'll say, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be generous. Let's say we preserve the hazard ratio. We'll give you the hazard ratio. Now you anchor that hazard ratio to the baseline event rates that are going on for people like this person. What do you think is going to happen to that? And then, you know, I think people start to see the error of their thinking. And that error is a deeply human error, which is that, you know, human beings, we would not have put a man on the moon if we were not optimistic. We're an optimistic species. You know, we're optimistic that we can go to tops of mountains for fun. You know, we can go on the moon. We can do everything we can do. That's great. But sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it's not what you need. Sometimes you need realism. You need accuracy. You need reasonable hope. And, and then as an oncologist, I'm also, uh, sometimes I'm also the person who's, you know, suggesting we do some of these things. And I guess I would say that I think the challenge in oncology 
you know, sometimes I go in the unit and say, this is the person that you're going to keep going on this person. And we're going to keep treating because, you know, this is APL and, you know, this has got a prognosis that's this. And so I think the challenge is like, I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly. The specialists do lose sight of the forest for the trees. They lose sight of it because I think often they don't know where these surrogates come from. So that's one of my interests is to like elucidate that. They don't know the correlation between the surrogates and what actually matters. They, I mean, they don't know some of these things. Um, but but I think the flip side of it is um, um, it takes a lot of learning to be able to separate the instances where you do want to do these seemingly heroic things because the odds are in your favor from the instances where you may not want to do these seemingly heroic things because they're not consistent with what somebody wants. Mm -hmm. And and that to me is the tough part and the hardest part of teaching people um, the practice of oncology. Yes. And I think you sometimes need I mean, obviously, you certainly not sometimes, you often need a palliative care doctor in the room to gently ask people to remember, what are we doing this for? And sometimes by just asking questions, the person's mind will be, you know, the truth will be revealed. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Helping people remember what we're in this for. And then I'll say my last thing is like, sometimes you go in the unit and like, um, you know, it's interesting to me that as much as I love and respect my critical care colleagues, you know, that, that sometimes, you know, if you're not in the field, it's hard to appreciate the difference between some relapse refractory leukemia that's like treatment related, came out of treatment related MDS and it's progressed on several lines of therapy versus a de novo APLL, APL or a de novo, you know, inversion 16 AML uh, and that these are very different animals. And so, mm. I don't know, it's hard to, you know, I mean, I do think the situation matters a great deal. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, but I want to, I want to talk about this thing that really caught my interest in what you said. So when I think, I mean, you're a thoughtful person, that's, that's good. And, um, and you, you were saying some things that were quite, um, so, and actually, I, I, spoiler alert, I'm probably gonna agree with you a lot because that's why I, I liked it so much. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think um, how I'll frame the issue is this. I mean, um, uh, living a good life means many things to many people. Uh, and it also means having a good death. And having a good death is different to different people. And some people think having a good death is to be made as comfortable as possible and let nature takes its course. Some people believe having a good death means when, when the end is looming and you see no, no way around that end, um, that we should do things. In fact, I ought to do things. In fact, I believe it's reasonable and permissible and ought to do it um, to, to hasten the end and to, mm. to either um, in partnership with a physician, take pills that will hasten death so-called physician-assisted suicide, or even in some other nations, not in this country, but, you know, actual euthanasia as administered by a physician. Um, and I always think that if you're the lay public, the way the lay public thinks about this issue is it misses so much of it, which is that um, um, human beings are remarkable in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, um, we often do want to live. Um, and when you ask people if they will be willing to live with certain disabilities, they often are very, uh, you know, um, uh, discriminatory. They believe that it's better to be dead than have these disabilities. But of course, if they were to have those disabilities, they suddenly realize that it, life is still wonderful, still wonder. There's so much meaning in life, even with what you once thought was a disability is actually not that um, not that deleterious, not that incapacitating, uh, and it's still worth pursuing. And so, you know, people often don't know what they'll feel until they're in that moment. Um, at the same time, we have a strong American sentiment of autonomy. People believe, um, you know, my body is my right. I should do whatever I want. And then the third piece of the puzzle that people often miss is that the way you feel and how you feel about living and dying is so much a product of the care you're getting. Are people giving you loving care? Are they giving you 
things to drink? Are they keeping you in clean sheets? Are they giving you pain control? Are they tending to you? Or have they put you in some vinyl wrapped mattress with some shitty blanket and some shitty pillow and then not turning you, not giving you proper food, not caring for you, you know? And, 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 if, you're in, and if you're being treated poorly and you wish to hasten your death, the first question I wanna say is, would you feel that way if we treated you right? Um, anyway, so I want to I want to probe you. Um, how do you think about this issue? You had a long thread on it. Yeah, yeah. So, and that that tweet thread came in response to a New York Times article uh, that focused on Diane Rehm and and her experience with her her the, the death of her husband from from Parkinson's disease. Um, but it is it does come from years of reflecting on this issue of uh, particularly suicide. I mean, one of my interests. In psychiatry and in palliative care is, is suicide just broadly construed and and how we conceive of our lives and how you how you come to terms and wrestle with this idea that death is preferable to continued living for whatever justification and the thing there, there are a lot of issues at play here one of which is this american ideal of autonomy and what autonomy is and what it means to different people uh, and, and whether you know in its ideal sense it's even real you know the human condition is one such that none of us are autonomous you know we need each other we need i can't live on my own emotionally socially physically i need other people for everything so whether autonomy is even something that can make sense philosophically or practically is you know i think um a different conversation but one important to have and it comes up a lot in my work as a psychiatrist when i was doing capacity assessments decision making capacity assessments and somebody would be right there on the line you know do they have capacity do they not and at the end of the day it doesn't really matter because they're going to involve their spouse and all their medical decisions anyway but somehow we foist on them this burden that they must be the one to make the decision um and and not you know serve their community whether that be within a right. within a specific relationship with another person or group of people or faith community or whatever so as I said, that that autonomy issue is one point that's very interesting to me. I think oh, very interesting. It, and and your point here is that uh, although it feels as if you make all your decisions, if you really reflect on it, you are a product of who you are and who's around you. Correct. Yeah. That's and and that's and that's the point here when we're making evaluations about our own quality of life. Who you know, many of my patients say they don't want to be a burden um, when it really comes down to it. You know, what are you concerned about in the weeks and months ahead with your serious illness? And, and, and of course, being in the VA, largely male population, they're very concerned about burdening their loved ones. Yes. Who taught them that? Who said that people become burdens? And I, I would posit that it's our culture that's yes. really focused on independence and youth Yes. and autonomy and productivity yes. and success by you know, various metrics yes. that our cultures outline that that doesn't come sort of you know it's via epiphany to each individual that's given to us that's bequeathed to us by our culture and when people make evaluations about their own life you know this state that i'm living in right now is not a life worth living yes you know i'd rather be dead than yes. continued living that decision is not a decision that is just about themselves. That's a decision about everybody, about whose lives are worth living. And that decision is formative of other people, whether it even just be the people in your own family or children, the clinicians who are caring for you. You know, if, if you're in the public media, I like Brittany Maynard was several years ago, you know, it can be very formative. Um, and so it's not just a manifestation of your autonomy and a very private decision for yourself. These decisions 
um, tell the culture what is valuable and what isn't. And the thing I struggle with and, and what I sort of outlined in that tweet thread was when people start calling this, uh, this practice of saying, this isn't a life worth living, so I'm going to do something different. I'm going to end my life. When they start calling that death with dignity, yeah. that invalid, invalidates other forms of dying. That invalidates dying without assisted yeah. suicide, dying without an overdose of barbiturates, yeah. um, which I think is, is really dangerous when you start to think about people who... Um, are not independent, who cannot toilet on their own or walk on their own or speak on their own, but continue to live. Um, and I think that's a, that's a huge challenge to those people. David Velleman, a philosopher, discovered or really articulated that challenge in the early 1990s when he, when he in, in the midst of making this argument, drew out an analogy. It's a very helpful analogy. And the analogy is this, that I'm having a dinner party and you're not invited. So you're not coming by default. You don't have to make any decisions. You're just right. not coming. Um, however, if I invite you to the dinner party, you can come, you can choose to come or you can choose not to come. But the one thing I have taken from you by offering you the choice is the option of not coming by default. And this is what happens, Velman argues, this is what happens when we present people with the option of dying with the right to die in his argument. And he's specifically focused on euthanasia, but it applies just as well to assisted suicide and applies actually just as well to offering the withdrawal withholding of life-sustaining therapies with the intent of dying is that somebody may be living by default. They may have very serious illness, but may not have considered dying before. And then we offer them the choice of dying and they may ultimately choose to continue living, but they've had to choose now. And choosing involves justifying, if only to yourself, uh, why you should continue living. And I think that's a very dangerous position to put people in who are vulnerable, um, who are, might be variably incapacitated, um, who may struggle to justify why they should continue living when they are concomitantly struggling with, should they can continue to burden their family? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a big, big struggle. I think we could care for our patients better without putting them in that bind. That's very well said. And I just want to say that, um, you know, a, a very simple and, 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 and a simple way of thinking about this situation is, you know, the goal of medicine is to empower people to make the right choices for them if they want to, uh, you know, uh, participate in uh, physician-assisted suicide or something like that, so be it. I think that's the, that's the first pass way to consider it. Um, and then I guess the other thing is I'd say, you know, I, I have, I bring no baggage to this table. I mean, I have no, uh, prima facie objection to this, were it to be the right policy. I mean, I wouldn't be objecting to it if I, if I really felt like it was the right policy congruent with everyone's desires in a, in a perfect world. Um, and, and I, and I just, I, but I do think the conversation is important to have because, um, because of the next thing I'm about to insert. Okay. So then I think the real thing is this, um, if you're a 70 or 80 year old person and let's say you have cancer. Um, just let's just stand back on a mountaintop and just look back, look at the situation. 70, 80 year old person with cancer in this country. Let's say this person has a net worth of, you know, nearly, you know, $20,000 net worth. Okay? And, you know, they're, they're, uh, um, they're, they're living based on social security checks, you know, something like that. Um, common scenario. Many people, many, many Americans find themselves in, um, <clears throat> this person, if we wanted to give this person a $280,000 a year medicine, that improve that PFS by one month, you know, easy, easy to get that, you know, easy in almost every healthcare system, even the V, you know, VF course and many systems, yeah, you get that medicine. What does that say? That's saying that we as a society, we're willing to care for this. We're going to give $280,000 your medicine. We'll give it to this person. 
well, what are we giving to this person? We're giving them, you know, this idea that we're treating your cancer. We're giving them a PFS benefit. Maybe there's no OS benefit. You know, often there isn't. Mm -hmm. um, um, and what are we really doing with that money? What are we really giving them? We really give them a $280,000 medicine? I mean, nominally, yeah, but it isn't $280,000. It costs uh, one grand to make that for a year. The rest is money that we're taking from society in the name of this person. We're saying, this is why, because of Tommy, we're taking this money from all of you and we're putting it in the hands of shareholders. We're making some people richer. Who are we making richer? Probably people like me, people got more money. I guess I'm on my way, but I'm, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm just a junior faculty, maybe someday. But no, you know, putting hands in the money of rich people. So what do we have? I think, I mean, I would argue we have a financial product. The product is actually making rich people richer. That's the product because that's the bulk of what we're doing. It's done in name of making this sick person better. It might not even do that. Meanwhile, what don't we pay for? If I said, give me that 280 grand, let me talk to Tom, let me talk to Thomas. And Thomas turns out he don't, he don't want this monoclonal, he doesn't want that drug, no. What he wants is, he wants that money to be spent so that somebody's gonna come to his house and help him get the mail. Somebody's gonna come do his dishes. Somebody's gonna come clean up his room, help him, help him just a few chores. And maybe we'll get three people come three times a day. Um, try to get that paid for. No help. Nobody will pay for it. And what does that do? That's not a product. That's not a financial product. Because, I mean, it is a financial product because you take that money and you, spare, you spread it. But who do you give it to? You give it to a whole bunch of people who are making $50,000 a year, $70,000. You give it to, like, middle-class people. And you're giving it to many middle-class people. And you're giving them retirement benefits and all these things. That's where you're taking that money and spending it on. And they're giving him care. And what I think is interesting, it's just a reflection of, of the medical system, is that the medical system will always do the former, pay for some device, some titanium bullshit that doesn't do anything, some drug that doesn't do anything, some drug that some doctor went to some dinner doesn't do anything, but it'll never pay for care. It won't pay for care. Okay, and, and what is this? This is, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, if you stand back and you look at this, you would just see this is just another classic feudal system a classic. I mean, it's a political system. It's a class system. It's actually, it's actually like uh, indenturing average people for the interests of the rich. I mean, it's just like every other system. It's just done with very fanciful names and monolithomab. They put a mab on the end of it, but it's the same fundamental thing, transaction. Uh, so it's an age-old transaction. Anyway, um, yes. but, 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 but it comes to your point. Okay, here's how I'll connect it to your point. In this environment, in this environment, somebody feels like they're a burden. They feel like their life's not worth living. How much of it is is the fact that we are screwing this person over. We're not giving them care and we're willing to pay for care. We're proving we're willing to pay for care. We're just not willing to pay for care that enriches average middle-class people. We're willing to pay for care that enriches some people. We're willing to pay for care that we think is disease-modifying, even if it isn't or isn't, who knows? Disease-modifying care, it's just a, you know, it's a word you say. PFS is disease modifying, but uh, you know somebody putting clean sheets on your bed, that's not disease modifying, you know? It's arbitrary. I would say I'd rather sleep in clean sheets than get some bullshit monoclonal antibody. You know, and there are many of them. There's so many of them, they can't even keep track of them. I mean, that's what half my job is writing about them. Um, so, I mean, I think like what you're saying is such a deep philosophical question that it's easy to ignore the challenge, which is we do not actually respect and love and care for sick people. We deprive them of so many basic things. In fact, I would just last enough. I was like, if you have ever slept in a hospital bed, you know, there's no, you never make your loved one sleep in that bed. 
That is yeah. a bed wrapped in vinyl, the shittiest pillow, <laughs> the shittiest pillowcase that always slips off that shitty vinyl pillow. It is, you press, your cheek will have acne on it because it's sweating against that shitty pillow. You wouldn't dare give it to your loved one. You wouldn't yeah. dare give that pillow to love. I mean, it's a small thing, but it says everything. You would, if your mother was sick and you give her, you would be embarrassed to give her that pillow. And we give it to everybody, you know, yeah. and we'll give them the monoclonal antibody. They may not do anything, but we won't give them real care. Um, that to me is the core problem in medicine. And that to me is a problem so endemic that we can't even think about this physician assisted suicide question impartially because we haven't cared for these people. And yeah. so if somebody says I'm a burden, I feel like dying, it's better to be dead than alive. And it's because you haven't cared for them. You show them you don't appreciate them. You don't, I mean, you don't, you don't respect them. You don't want them to have quality in their life. You take away, you know, it's like, it's like a prisoner saying they would rather be dead than be in a prison. You know, yeah. I mean, it's an exaggeration, but you know, it is the same. And so yeah. they're not in a good place for that. And so until you make their life better, then talk to me about it. If, and let's see right. how they feel then. They may not feel that way. I think, uh, I think that's a really good point. I think there are, there, there are probably priorities within society that need to be addressed before we can even consider certain questions. And it feels like we're rushing to provide solutions to problems that haven't even fully been elucidated. I will say to preempt perhaps uh, folks that would uh, object to the point you're making, which is that the majority of people who avail themselves of assisted suicide in states like Oregon are college-educated, higher-income people, seemingly well-supported on hospice and, and insurance and all these sorts of things. And from the metrics that we can measure, you know, with, with all the caveats that entails, then the metrics we can measure seem to be getting all the care they need. And in fact, their biggest concerns and their biggest reasons for pursuing assisted suicide are more existential issues like uh, loss of autonomy, being a burden, you know, um, concern for one's family, these sorts of things. And the symptoms and the um, sort of the physical experience of illness or the, or the care is actually ranked lower down on the list. Um, and I think that's important to consider as we sort of try and suss out how best to handle this issue and think about this issue is that even if people are making autonomous decisions to, to pursue assisted suicide, even if um, the physical symptoms are unrelieved, I, I still feel like that's insufficient information to determine whether um, a particular act is justifiable or commendable. I mean, should we be recommending assisted suicide? I mean, it sounds like maybe perhaps I'm preaching the choir a little bit, but I mean, you know, even for people who think assisted suicide should at least be available, are they in the clinic or at the bedside recommending assisted suicide as a, as a course of action to you know, the majority of their patients that are concerned about dying at the end of life? And if not, if they think assisted suicide is something that is you know, available and, and permissible, why not? Why not recommend it alongside palliative care? And, I, and I'm bringing that point up. Sorry, good. No, no, no. I, 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 I finish your thought. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, it, I'm bringing that up just to sort of push the issue a little bit that um, we rely so heavily on this construct of autonomy to sort of settle decision-making. I mean, a lot of ethical dilemmas at the bedside are, well, who decides? Who's going to make this decision? There's really no right decision to make. You can do kind of what you want, continue the ventilator, stop the ventilator, as long as we know who decides. And so for the root, you know, your clinician in the trenches of, of routine clinical care, 
the, the fundamental ethical dilemma is just figuring out who makes these decisions and then we're done. Um, and I would, I would suggest that that's insufficient to figure this out. We need more, uh, we, we need a richer ethical conversation about what constitutes good living and human dignity um, in order to settle, like, should we be per, um, recommending that people kill themselves? Should we even have the choice in the cultural milieu? I mean, I recognize as a psychiatrist, if somebody wants to kill themselves, I can't babysit them 24 seven for the rest of their lives <clears throat> to keep them from killing themselves. I've involuntarily hospitalized many patients uh, because they're acutely suicidal um, and kept them from killing them their, their, themselves. And at the same time, recognizing that on discharge, if they wanna go kill themselves, that they, they could. And that's, that's the lamentable state of human affairs that this is a choice that's available to all of us. We could kill ourselves. And some philosophers say that's the fundamental decision. Wake up every day. Are you yeah. gonna kill yourself today? Yes or no? No, then go live your life. Um, and, um, but I'm saying most people don't live that way. Most people live by default. And when you present them with a choice of yeah. whether to die, then it throws all sorts of things out of whack. Well, you know, I guess, uh, you know, you cited the data from the organ experience and I have, you know, some familiarity with it because you practiced up there for five years mm -hmm. and we had those, we had these clinics. And I think a lot of people were interested in getting those pills and having them that control, mm -hmm. but not a lot of people use those pills. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and, and there were always some tough cases that I, that I have heard about over the years, where as a doctor, I really, really wondered whether or not that, you know, I'm talking about some curable malignancies and things like that. And people forego care and then decide to do this instead. And I thought, you know, I don't know if that's, that's acceptable to me, but I will say um, the data you cited, I'm not, I'm not sold on this data and I'll tell you why. I mean, I want to know what happened. I mean, I, 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 I still think we're, I mean, of course it is the case that, you know, I mean, you just had a data that they're more likely to be college educated, more likely to have these resources, the people who end up using this program. Uh, that's probably because the people who don't have those resources aren't even, you know, nobody's even referring them to this program. Their care is so shitty. They're not even getting referred to the death with dignity program. They're getting the shittiest of shit care. So, okay, that's a failure. These people are getting some care. I don't know. I, I want to feel that pillow, uh, you know, as a metaphor for the quality of the care. And that pillow is that vinyl pillow. I swear to God, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, that's not, right i mean i really say that's not right okay but i want to know what happens to the billionaires how many billionaires you know when you really have unlimited money and people can come and actually take care of you in your bed and fluff up your pillow and put you on a nice sheets would they want it i don't know i mean i guess i would say that full disclosure i mean i have no uh, more of i have no uh, deep-seated moral or religious objection to this i think it is I, i'm i'm a totally uh secular and neutral party on this issue i have nothing i mean if if, if you know if, if you showed me somebody getting exquisite care but still deeply suffering maybe heading a cancer and they're getting a lymphedema of the head you know some of these very hard things to control they're getting you know incredible pain um you know that that's i mean some i mean obviously separate issue people also don't know how to control pain and I think we can do a hell of a lot better, okay? But there's still some pain, some situations that you can't control. I mean, I, I've seen a few lymphedema of the head and that is not a good way. Uh, and that's a very difficult proposition. And, some, and, and sometimes you literally talk about terminally sedating people. Okay, um, so, you know, show me somebody getting great care. Show me somebody empowered. Show me somebody who's not worried about their children's finances and show me that person says, I still wanna go through with this. This is what's right for me. You've got my support. But show me a system that doesn't care, people, care for people that fundamentally is broken in innumerable ways. Show me that system. And then I have a lot of questions. Uh, and that's the yes. system we're in. I will say um, that, so, you know, I, I'm 
uh, hopeful. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we're sort of optimistic as a species. I'm hopeful. Hopefully I'm not leaning on sort of, you know, naive idealism, but I think one of the key, one of the keys, not the only key and not the Rosetta Stone, but one of the keys to fixing this broken healthcare system is reorienting ourselves around what, why do we even care for people? I mean, why not, why not just, you know, not just scrap the healthcare system. Everybody's a burden who's sick. If you can't, you know, pay taxes, you're just cut off. I mean, it didn't have to be this way that we spend so much money caring for people. We could just we could just let them die. I mean, we could just, and, and societies throughout history have done that. You know, societies, we only need remember the Holocaust. I mean, you know, that, that comes up, you know, in these types of conversations as sort of a specter and sort of a Trump card. And I'm, and I'm not bringing that up blithely, you know, because I think we need to remember the lessons that came out of the Holocaust. I mean, you know, the, the, the Declaration of, of Geneva, the Declaration of Helsinki, the Belmont Report, you know, all bioethics as a field came out of the Holocaust and, and realizing like how terrible that was uh, within the realm of medicine. Many terrible things happened within the realm of medicine and medical research. Um, we as a society, as a global society said, we cannot let this happen again. You know, and, and what were the evaluations going on in Germany, you know, during those years? It was Leben zum Wertes Leben, lives unworthy of life. And um, that, that was a problem because the state was making that evaluation of those people's lives. And I would submit to you that when people, individuals make that own evaluation about themselves, it's the same evaluation, just a different person making it. And it still has a similar impact on the culture in which we're living. And so our healthcare system is so bent out of whack because we've lost sight of the humans for which for whom we're caring and and what actually makes them dignified and how much we should honor their dignity if if we really recognized the fundamental fundamental quality of human dignity that we all share we wouldn't be treating people like they're just you know vehicles for financial products we that's would be treating them with the honor and respect they deserve um and that's that's not the case some people value money more than human dignity I think that comes back to bite them and us and everybody else when we when we don't when we fail to realize that our evaluations about our own lives aren't just like personal private evaluations, but they build the culture in which we're now living. We live in this culture because we built it and, and we made it this way. Um, it, we, we like to say healthcare is broken and, and may, may, you know, maybe it is, but maybe it's built this way because it's in, it's functioning as intended. That's what I think. Um, yeah. Because we have lost sight of the humanity and the humans and the people for whom we're for whom we're caring. And a very specific bioethical example of this is coming out of you know the horrors of the early 20th century. The the, the fundamental bioeth bioethical principle that drove a lot of the nascent bioethics in that area was respect for persons. Respect for persons. And in the 1970s with Beecham and Childress, that sort of got shifted into respect for autonomy. And so, of course, you know, the four principles of medical ethics, Beecham and Childress's principles of biomedical, biomedical ethics, you have uh, respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and justice. You don't have respect for persons. Right. And so this, this trump card of autonomy is sort of swelled to overwhelm all our thinking and all our considerations. But when you respect autonomy, suddenly, and other ethicists have sort of brought up this idea, people without autonomy or people with impaired autonomy get shunted 
into the beneficence, non-malfeasance category where they don't aren't necessarily guaranteed respect. They're guaranteed our sort of beneficent goodwill or, or what have you. Uh, and I think that's a that's a subtle shift, but has major implications in in our healthcare system as we're seeing today. I think every problem you're you're lamenting and, and frustrated about and that I'm frustrated about goes back to our failure to recognize and honor the inherent dignity of every person. Well, that's, that's a very interesting perspective. You're playing with a tough metaphor. Let's see. Listeners will decide if you pulled it up, but okay, here's what I'd say. I'd say, um, you know, you make a number of interesting points. No one ever thinks of children as a burden, although they require a great deal of care, just as older people do. And in many cultures, they were once treated, uh, you know, uh, uh, caring for somebody doesn't mean they're a burden. It, in fact, it's a privilege sometimes to care for people. In fact, that's what our whole job is. I don't know if people forgot that. Um, and then the next thing I'd say that I think is so interesting is I think you're right. I mean, autonomy, uh, uh, I mean, I think you're right in a couple of respects, but one is autonomy. We're, we're punch drunk on autonomy. And to some degree, it's a reaction to what came before, which was people not telling you things and just doing things to you. And so then you swing, the pendulum swings the other way, but it can swing too far. Autonomy without real support is not real choice. Autonomy, we all we already, I mean, I'm so, I have another article coming out today on some uh, regulatory policy issue. And then one of the things people were objecting was like, oh, well, what about autonomy? And I was like, you, you, we have a regulatory, th this whole debate was about whether or not something should be approved. And I, I'm, I'm arguing that uh, now that it's approved, there's some problems with it. We should pull it off the market, at least in a portion of, of people. Okay. They're like, well, that will take away their autonomy. And I was like, you've already conceded to take away their autonomy with the first fucking approval process. What are you talking about? We already have decided we don't have absolute abject autonomy to do whatever the hell we want. Society regulates autonomy to help us make safe choices congruent with what we really care about and empowered choices. And so, you know, um, you know, if you starve somebody or you give somebody no liquid and then they end up drinking from a puddle, that's their autonomy. But of course, you've given them no water. And so they're desperate, you know. And similarly, one has to ask oneself here, um, you know, autonomy can't be above all else. And I think, I don't know, I mean, there's a number of ways in which it it plays out end of life. One of the ways is which the way you've been talking about the other way, of course, is I think um, many clinical trials enrollment is coercive. It's it's also takes away autonomy, um, because people feel as if the, there are the other choices are bleak, and they're, they're sold a bill of goods about the trial itself, many flawed, such flawed studies that have detailed. Um, anyway, this is a great discussion. Very interesting. I mean, I think that um, I hope, uh, you know, that at least the listeners get a sense that, I mean, I, I guess I want to say that, like, I think when you practice medicine, especially practice a long time, um, the longer you, I mean, the, these issues are not as clear. I think it's easy to be on the public and just like, oh, just have it or just don't, you know, have very strong decisions. But, the, but, they're, but, but medicine is so gray, you know, and, um, and, and you often wonder why people are doing what they're doing and you ask follow-up questions, you really try to understand them. Um, and, and a good doctor doesn't just say, you know, ABC autonomy, you know, that is not, and good and pay and not good patient, but and pay, and many patients don't want that. Many patients want guidance. They want reassurance. And you're asking, I think, important and tough questions. And I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, you know, like so many issues in the modern world, um, there may be some real things that you are that like the autonomy movement is really going against the paternalism movement, I think, which was harmful. Um, but sometimes the solution it misses the mark as well, you know, and I think sometimes people forget that, too. I'll give yes. you the final word. Joshua Briscoe. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just want to emphasize that, like, as much as I appreciate this conversation, I think at the bedside in the clinic, 
um, you know, as a, in the conversations nationally as a society, we need to start with just lamenting the state of the human condition that this is real. You know, I don't mean to downplay anybody's suffering, uh, anybody's pain, anybody's experience of their health. Um, we death and dying is lamentable. And my heart breaks, you know, I'm brought to my knees, you know, every day as I care for patients with really serious illness, and really big problems. And, um, and so I don't mean to make it seem like it's easy, or if we just thought of the right thing or philosophize the right way, then all our problems would go away. They wouldn't. Um, I think the beginning of, of a better way of caring for people and the beginning of a more hopeful approach to caring for patients and more, more hopeful foundation to our healthcare system would be to um, start with lamenting that we have missed um, the, the essence of what makes makes each other dignified, you know, gives us it gives ourselves inherent objective dignity on which human rights are grounded, on which our mutual respect is grounded, on which our constitution is grounded, on which the 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 basis on which we practice medicine, care for one another, is grounded. And if we lose sight of that, then of course we're going to treat each other as vehicles for for financial products. Of course we're going to um, you know manipulate people into into whatever sort of we. Want want or or on the flip side of that sort of just try and like pass over the whole biomedical menu to the patient let them make all the decisions let them bear all the burden of tough medical decisions and we see our job as just like the technicians we're just technicians and our work is evacuated of virtually any ethical content because we force our patients to bear that burden alone and i think at that end of the spectrum we're all also doing our patients a disservice. And we also miss um, the dignity that they are that they have and the respect that they're owed when they're sick and vulnerable and coming to us for help. And help is more than just giving people a menu. It's more than just uh, suggesting that or even su suggesting or even just permitting um, that they kill themselves in the event of you know, viewing themselves as not having an adequate quality of life. I think we could do better if only we really um, want to see the, the full manifestations of the human condition and all their messiness. Um, and through that, behold actual human dignity. Joshua Briscoe, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.